Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel. Honestly, you don't want to be taking generic legal advice from a YouTube channel or podcast in any event. On with the show. Failure is a ladder. How corporate structure explains Benioff and Weiss's $200 million payday. Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing partner of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we have an episode that I almost called a Virtual Legality Extra, which are those episodes which are kind of more opinion, editorial focused, and only tangentially related to business and law. But I thought it was important to name this a numbered episode because we are actually going to talk about the incentive structures at play in a modern corporation. And one of the reasons I started the Virtual Legality show, the series, was to talk to folks about why they are seeing what they are seeing. With my experience and background in business and law, sometimes you get a news item and it doesn't make a lot of sense. And such was the case yesterday. So I've pulled up right now a tweet that I saw yesterday, and you can see my snarky response below if you're watching this on the video, but it was from the New York Times, and it says, in a blow to HBO, Amazon and Disney, three different companies, the creators of Game of Thrones, David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, signed a deal with Netflix to create new TV shows and feature films. And I got this, and a number of people uh, retweeted me and asked me my opinion on this because I had done a series of post-mortem reviews of the last season of Game of Thrones. Obviously, I became more and more critical of the output that these uh, gentlemen were putting out on the screen during the entirety of the last season. And if you are at all familiar with the Game of Thrones uh, kind of controversy, I suppose, in this last season, uh, I've pulled up the IMDb list of reviews for the episodes. That was a six-episode season. It was very short. They had a lot to cover, a lot of uh, plot threads to finish off. I won't spoil it for you any more than they did uh, in terms of finishing up the series if you're halfway through Game of Thrones or something along those lines. But one thing that you can see in these uh, reviews on IMDb, and this is just a, a, a kind of random uh, page that I pulled up. There are other places to get reviews, but they mostly tell the same story. You've got a 7.6 as the first episode, a 7.9 as the second, then 7.5. 5.5, 6.1, and 4.2, which I think is an accurate reflection in all honesty of what I have been seeing online and certainly how I felt about the episodes. In fact, the early episodes here are probably more highly rated than I would have done. So you, you look at that and you say, wait, so Benioff and Weiss, who basically didn't land the plane of Game of Thrones as much as they crashed the plane of Game of Thrones, they got a big, big deal from Netflix for that? And in fact, they did. I've got the CBS News report up here now, and it has bullets. It says Netflix has signed a $200 million deal with Game of Thrones showrunners David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, as reported by Deadline. And so we look at the Deadline article now because $200 million is a lot of money. And we see here they say Netflix wins overall film TV deal for Game of Thrones creators Benioff and Weiss. And they say... Nobody was confirming numbers, but sources tell Deadline the deal is in the nine-figure range, like some of the other mega deals signed by showrunners 
like Shonda Rhimes and Ryan Murphy. If you're not familiar with those names, Shonda Rhimes has a company called Shondaland, which basically completely controlled Thursday nights for a long time uh, with Grey's Anatomy and how to get away with murder and things like that. She focuses on those kinds of dramas. Ryan Murphy, I believe, is behind Glee and American Horror Story and so does have a significant number of successes. These are showrunners that have made their networks a lot, a lot of money. The deal for Benioff and Weiss, which we hear is for five years, and is worth as much as $300 million was brokered by their lawyer. So they've got a $300 million number here. The Hollywood Reporter is reporting a $200 million number. Either way, it's a five-year deal. It's going to involve them creating at least one, probably more than one, show for Netflix uh, to be uh, executive produced by these guys and then probably run in some capacity by others uh, in the stable. Uh, But they are going to make a lot, a lot of money. And you say to yourself, Rick, you know, how does that how does that happen? We've got what is widely considered to be a crash landing on the only thing that these guys have ever really made. Uh, and how could Netflix just suddenly give them two hundred million dollars? You say, hey, maybe I don't like Shonda Rhimes's output or maybe I don't like Ryan Murphy's. But it's easier to understand. They have a number of series for a number of years that have worked out very well for their networks, have made them a lot of money. And that investment makes a little bit more sense. You talk about Benioff and Weiss and you say, how did this happen? And what I would point you to is this page. So I've just pulled up a Google search of Game of Thrones Emmy Awards and Google helpfully puts them all in boxes up at the top. And you can see here, it's just award after award after award after award. And we can scroll to the side and we get more and more and more awards. And that's what Game of Thrones has been now for uh, seven or eight years. And so when you're looking at these kinds of decisions, when you're looking at what's happening at a corporation like Netflix, and you can look as a fan and somebody who liked Game of Thrones, and I loved Game of Thrones. I was reading Game of Thrones, not the series, the actual book, which was the name of the first book in A Song of Ice and Fire, when I was in college. uh, And I followed the series since then, and I was very much looking forward to its adaptation. And to be fair, I thought Benioff and Weiss did a, a very good job of adapting difficult source material for a number of years, probably halfway through the series. And then the way the story goes is that, hey, they ran out of source material from George R. R. Martin. They had to do their own thing. And then I think the story goes that you saw a precipitous decline in both the detail and depth of the writing and, frankly, the logic and sense that it made. Uh, And I tend to agree with that story. Different minds can obviously differ on that point. But I think when they ran out of the the novel material, they did have to write the stuff for themselves. And I am inclined to think that's when you got to see Benioff and Weiss writing for themselves. And it was not a pretty picture. Of course, they were dealing with plot lines and characters they hadn't created themselves. And so it was an unusual task. And I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt on that. But the point is, when you are the chief content officer for uh, for Netflix, and you're trying to figure out who to spend money on and, and trying to figure out what makes sense to spend money on. If you've got all of those Academy, uh, not Academy Awards, Emmy Awards that are for this series that these two gentlemen made and they're willing to come and work for you, I think it's it's very easy to justify. And that's really what this video is about. We're going to talk about justification, how the structure of a corporation works, to just talk about how this happens. I've pulled back up the deadline article just to get the quote uh, from Ted Sarandos, who is the chief content officer at Netflix. And here's what he said. He said, we are thrilled to welcome master storytellers David Benioff and Dan Weiss to Netflix. They are a creative force and have delighted audiences worldwide with their epic storytelling, 
we can't wait to see what their imaginations will bring to our members. Of course, that's very standard public relations speak. You don't just sign a 200 or potentially $300 million contract and say, we don't know what we're doing. Sorry about that. Uh, You say, hey, here's why we did it. Here's what we are expecting them to deliver. And of course, you reflect on how important Game of Thrones has been to the popular culture and the zeitgeist for the last decade or so, which it has been. So Benioff and Weiss became famous on the back of Game of Thrones, uh, deservedly so, for at least a portion of that. And for the last two years, season seven and seasons eight, maybe it didn't go so well. In fact, I think almost everybody that really enjoyed the show in its early years would be inclined to say it didn't go so well. But that's not the whole story. And when you've got all those Emmy Awards and when you've got uh, Emmy Awards, even for this last season with those ratings that I showed you from IMDb, I've got a Variety article up here that absolutely tells the tale. Game of Thrones breaks Emmy record for most nominations in a single season. The the evidence is backing up. You've got an officer that's putting these people into place for his network. And if someone asks him, why did you do this? You could say, look at all the awards. Look at all of the accolades Game of Thrones has earned during its entire run. And these were the guys behind that. These were the guys that approached George R.R. Martin and said, we want to make this show and had that early interview that is now the the stuff of legends in terms of the interviews that they give. And and certainly they give it that patina of legendary status themselves. Uh, But we've got all of these reasons to believe that they might succeed, even if we might have a strong reason to believe that they won't. So let's take a look at just a kind of example corporate organization structure. I know we've talked about this in virtual legality before, but it's important to know how corporations work. And I don't think that that often gets talked about. It's just kind of a baseline 101 level in the news enough. So a corporation is a collection of money that's received from others. And that's that's really all it is. Uh, and it's, uh, in this case, shareholders. If you've got a corporate status, then you've got people that own shares. They buy those shares from the company. And the company gets that money, and then they have a percentage ownership of the company. Now, that's not the same as the stock market. That's actually what we would call a secondary trading market. That's between shareholders of a company or between one shareholder and somebody that wants to be a shareholder. That's the pricing that you see on the secondary market. And corporations do react to that because that's an important metric for whether they're succeeding or not. And that's an important place for them to potentially go get more money if they need it. And so they need to keep that stock price high. But the shareholders of the company are the true owners. Everybody else we're about to talk about are what are called fiduciaries. And fiduciary in this context means that they protect the money that has been given to them for whatever purpose the business has been created to perform. So the shareholders put their money in a pile and the directors and the officers protect that money and seek to have that money grow by performing the business reason for the company's existence. So the shareholders, their primary purpose, their primary governing ability under most state laws and most uh, foreign laws, I believe, is to elect the board of directors. That's really their sole governance contact with the company. So the shareholders elect the board of directors and the board sits above everything else. And the board of directors says, okay, on a quarterly basis or on some kind of temporal basis, we're gonna check in on the company. We're gonna make sure everything's going in a direction that we like. And we're gonna make major changes if necessary, major changes to uh, the scope of the business, to potentially selling the business, acquiring other businesses, those kinds of things. But day to day, the actual functioning of the business, the board doesn't do. What the board does do is that they appoint or elect, depending on what statute you're organized under, they appoint or elect officers of the corporation to run the thing. 
And so the board of directors, which was hired by the shareholders, then hires a CEO and president and potentially some other officers to do the work of the day-to-day operations of the company. A CEO, a chief executive officer, is basically charged with the major kind of day-to-day direction of the company. You know, what opportunities are we going to seek? What are we not going to seek? And really the big picture stuff. Then often you have a chief operating officer, and that chief operating officer is, is more down in the dirt, is the more gritty stuff, having to deal with how to implement the chief executive officer's vision on a day-to-day basis. Then you can have a bunch of other officers that are either under directly under the chief executive officer or under the other various chief officers that give you the kind of uh, tree of the entire company. I pulled up just a sample here just so that you could kind of see how the picture works. But we have just a very basic Netflix organization chart here that I've pulled up and it shows that Reed Hastings is the founder and CEO and that he has a bunch of direct reports. But what we were most imp- uh, important to us in d- this discussion is that there's a chief product officer, Greg Peters. He's probably in charge of actually developing the applications, the web browser, that kind of thing, making sure the product end of Netflix works well. You have a chief marketing officer in Jackie Lee Joe who uh, does the advertising and sells Netflix to the world. The chief content officer, which is what we were talking about, Ted Sarandos, who is in charge of getting content onto the service, making these deals with folks like Benioff and Weiss to get that content up on uh, the service because the service is all about delivering content. It's probably a connection with the product officer insofar as that's probably the technology piece of the puzzle and he's probably actually putting things in the technology. You've got a general counsel, you've got a chief talent officer, which is very likely in charge of actually handling the day-to-day responsibilities of keeping the talent happy and making sure that they know exactly what they need uh, in terms of uh, the actual showrunners once they're signed up and things like that. A chief communications officer, which probably works with the marketing officer on public relations, and a chief financial officer, which handles the numbers. And those are officers that are under the CEO, and the CEO is under the board of directors, and the board of directors is technically under the shareholders. Although there are any number of treatises and law school classes and business school classes you can talk about with respect to the agency problem, which is exactly how much control do shareholders have over the actual operation of the company and how much of it is co-opted by essentially this group, the officers, the people that are actually running the company day to day and can tell the board in their reports what needs to happen. Shareholders have become over the years uh, more activist, uh, more controlling of potentially problematic board deals, problematic compensation deals for the marketing uh, or for the chief executive officer or whoever it might be. And so you are seeing a few shareholders that have a lot of interest in these companies, especially public companies that are getting involved and saying, no, we're not going to vote on that slate for the board or we're against that compensation package for X, Y, or Z. But outside of that, when you're talking about public companies, the power is so disparate, is so controlled by so many people that one of the problems that is a constant discussion point in terms of corporate structure and corporate law is exactly how much control do those shareholders really have at the end of the day. But what we're talking about is Game of Thrones. We're talking about Benioff and Weiss and why this might happen, why you might give 200 to $300 million to two showrunners that appeared to fall flat on their face to the entire world, except for maybe the the Emmy Awards body. Uh, And the reason for that is that it's very easy to justify. That's the word I used earlier in this video. And I think it's important to understand the structure because what's going to happen is Ted Sarandos is going to spend this $200 million. And what you have to imagine is in the future if it doesn't work out. 
Because if it works out, there's nothing to justify. If these guys make the best darn show, the Netflix analytics show that everybody is coming to watch the Benioff and Weiss show, and they made a ton of money on this particular decision, nobody's going to have to justify anything. If you're an officer making these decisions, you don't have to think about the upside risk because the upside risk is great. Anything that works there is fine. So you don't have to think about that. What you have to think about is if this goes wrong, what do I tell my boss? In this case, the CEO of the company who's going to have to report to the board who is ultimately responsible to the shareholders and looking at potential share price issues. If Benioff and Weiss never make anything good and you spent $200 million and then on top of that, if maybe Shonda and, and Ryan don't make anything good either, you've got major, major issues. But just talking about Benioff and Weiss, if they don't make anything good, the question immediately becomes, why did you sign them? And you can point and say, hey, look, yeah, they had a hiccup at the end, but look at all the awards they made. Look at everything that they did. Look at how well thought of the early seasons of this show were. So how was I supposed to know that they would you know, get fat and lazy with their $200 million or get completely taken up with doing Star Wars or whatever it might be that you could give as an excuse uh, for why it didn't work out at Netflix? Because of the way these structures work, because of the way essentially a boss and subordinate relationship works, it's not unexpected to have a decision made essentially based on past history that even if you've got really good red flags to look at for potentially why it could go wrong, you don't necessarily listen to those red flags as long as there's a way to justify why it went wrong retroactively. And in this particular case, it's very, very easy to justify. You've got two people that made HBO a national presence for a long, long time uh, and continued HBO's run of dominance in that, in that kind of pop culture mindset score. And you've signed them up to your service. It's very difficult to argue against from that perspective. People from afar, like me, like you, if you're listening or watching this virtual legality episode, it's easy for us to say, wow, I'm not sure they're any good, guys. Are you positive you want to spend $200 million? And in fact, if you follow me on Twitter, you will see that I said that. Uh, but it's another thing entirely when you're talking about the officer responsible for signing the $200 million contract. Uh, and that's really what happened here. On the other side of things, you might say, okay, these guys did bad at the end of Game of Thrones, but aren't there other people that have done bad and have turned out just fine? I've pulled up the IMD reviews for the last season of The Leftovers, which was handled uh, by uh, Damon Lindelof, who, if you're familiar with Damon Lindelof, was the chief creative mind behind Lost, uh, which has one of those finales and really final seasons that has been a point of contention across the internet. I also think that they did a rather poor job with the, with the last season of Lost, although I would take it over the last season of Game of Thrones in a terrible, terrible decision matrix. But if you look at this last season of The Leftovers, which again is Damon Lindelof, he's getting nines. He's getting eights. He's, his finale got a 9.6. It's a huge, huge review for a, a show that I don't think a lot of people watched, but in terms of at least the equivalent of Oscar bait, Emmy bait, was very well received by uh, the folks that did watch it and got great, great reviews. So again, if you're that officer at Netflix, you say, hey, look, Damon Lindelof was sent off to see. He was essentially told that he couldn't do what he wanted to do. He had to come back. He made this show and it turned out great. So again, even if Bettyoff and Weiss don't make a show that is, is worth anything on Netflix, I can say they had a history of success. We've seen other people have a rough landing that wound up having a history of success. 
you know, CEO, I'm sorry this didn't work out, but I had every reason to believe it would and I can justify my actions very easily. And so that's what you see in a corporate structure. Now, that's not telling the entire story because if we look at the actual reviews for Lost, a very, very popular show, and its final season, we see that while maybe folks didn't love how it finished and didn't love how it landed, it's still getting in the eights and sevens throughout its entire season run. And it's eights and eights and eights. And the finale is in the eights. You're not looking at something in Lost like the Game of Thrones landing. The Iron Throne, which, by the way, was nominated by the Emmys for Best Directing and Best Writing of all things, currently has a 4.2. Now, yeah, you can game the system. There might be a lot of ones in there that are trying to make a point. But the, the point of the discussion is it has a 4.2. It's widely considered to be a very, very poor ending to the story. And unlike Lost, which while it was one of the, the kind of first forays into network serialization of a really major scale, it it had episodes that you could just kind of take out and really love. Uh, I love the constant. I go back and watch that even if I didn't love the whole of the Lost uh, finale and the entire Lost story. Game of Thrones is entirely serialized. These were the payoffs to all of the stories that you've been watching for eight years. And those payoffs uh, were lame and they didn't make a lot of sense and they weren't handled very well. And when you have that, I think it reflects poorly on the rest of your storytelling, the rest of what you tried to put in there because you didn't properly foreshadow, you didn't properly lay the framework for getting to the ending that you got to and then you did that ending badly. That says a lot about your overall structure, your overall planning. And I think you're telling a different story when you're talking about failures with Game of Thrones than you are with Lost. And that's really, if I were Netflix and if I were HBO, that's what I would be concerned about. And I certainly think that HBO was concerned. I've pulled up just a random story here because I wanted to point out the fact that Benioff and Weiss pitched and got greenlit a show called Confederate by HBO in 2017. And this show was about what would happen if the Confederacy had won the Civil War, what our world would look like in the modern day if that had happened. And this was met by a great deal of internet backlash. Some of it deserved, some of it not deserved. But the point of it is HBO shelved it, basically, in the face of that backlash. Uh, and it was never really heard from again. Uh, we've got this article from the Atlanta uh, news now Atlanta uh, Journal Courier maybe I don't know what AJC is unfortunately but it's an Atlanta newspaper that says Confederate television series appears to be shelved and we see that again mirrored uh, at the same time in uh, Deadline which goes along with Benioff and Weiss signing up with Kathleen Kennedy and Lucasfilm to do Star Wars controversial HBO series Confederate unlikely after David Benioff and D.B. Weiss commit to new Star Wars movies so HBO was not jumping up to give these guys another show. They were originally in the midst of season six of Game of Thrones, which was a pretty strong season for them in all honesty. HBO greenlit this show, Confederate, and then got the backlash and said, we're not going to do that and really didn't seem to care that much. That's one of the reasons I reacted to the Twitter uh, tweet from the New York Times that said, in a blow to HBO, yeah, I don't know that it was a blow to HBO. They really didn't seem to jump on making Confederate. They really didn't seem to jump on stopping them from leaving or from signing a deal with Star Wars, from doing really anything to prevent them from going. And I think if I'm HBO, who again has its own corporate organizational structure, who has its own things to deal with, its own people to appease, uh, then I think you look at what happened with Game of Thrones and you say, 
they really didn't focus on delivering a good product for the last two seasons of the show. I always hesitate to call people lazy, right? Uh, this happens a lot with game development, with video games, where you could talk about lazy game developers for not doing X or Y or Z. And a lot of the times I think that's unfair because there are other constraints, whether it's budgetary constraints, timing constraints. In this particular case, it was clear that from the off, HBO would have done anything to give them all the money that they needed to do as many episodes as they wanted and as many seasons as they wanted to finish this show off. And what it appears happened after season six is that uh, they just got bored with it. They had senioritis. They didn't. They weren't interested in it. They were hired to adapt material, and they didn't have any more material to adapt, so they had to write their own. And so they finished it up as shoddily and as quickly as possible so that they could move on. They wanted to move on. And if I'm HBO and I've spent all this money in it, and now I've got this black mark uh, on my face because of what happened in the last two seasons, I'm not thrilled with them. And I've spent all this money on them. I'm not so thrilled to spend a great deal of, of money more on them because they seem to latch on to Star Wars or anything else as soon as they were bored with Game of Thrones. And so I think there are a lot of red flags. The fact that HBO really didn't try to do everything and move heaven and earth to keep them is a red flag in and of itself. The fact that Netflix is willing to do so is, is interesting. But of course, Netflix had one of its worst quarters on record in the recent past with users essentially stagnating, and that's okay because they had a price increase and that's better than a free fall, but coming in well below the expectations that they had set for the market themselves. So Netflix is in a very interesting inflection point uh, in and of itself. And so you've got all these things kind of combining into a very, very interesting stew. And so I'll be interested to see what happens, but that's one of the reasons why this story occurs is because you can justify it because it's very easy to take some shining light and say, yeah, we hired them because they've done something good in the past and because it makes sense for our corporation. It's one of the reasons uh, why I so like what Kevin Feige has done with Marvel Studios, which is they take risks on virtually every movie. I mean, if you would have imagined that they would have signed the directors for the community sitcom show to handle Winter Soldier, which was a major turning point in their series, and then to give them Civil War, and then, of course, the biggest movies ever made with Infinity War and Endgame, you would have been laughed out of the room. That's a risk. What makes you think the Russo brothers can handle that kind of task, Kevin? But he has the clout at Disney, and he had had the successes with the Avengers and signing Joss Whedon, who did Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel, to do Avengers, that he can do that kind of thing. Same for Ryan Coogler and Black Panther, which is a major, major success. He had done a Rocky sequel and Fruitvale Station, and those movies are fantastic. Highly recommend them if you haven't seen them. Creed is one of my favorite movies of all time, and Fruitvale Station is great but depressing, so you know, be ready for that. But they gave him Black Panther, and he knocked it out of the park, and that was a risk. Now, to Lucasfilm's credit, they try to take risks. They had uh, Lord and Miller doing the solo movie, but they balked at the last minute. They tried to put Gareth Edwards in control of Rogue One, but they balked at the last minute. J.J. Abrams is essentially whatever the anti-risk would be in respect of Star Wars. Everybody knew that he could build essentially Star Trek 2009 as a Star Wars movie, and that's what he did. And their major risk, Ryan Johnson, which was a major risk, absolutely, has made what amounts to the most divisive Star Wars movie ever, and that, in my opinion, is being generous, but you know that if you've seen some of the other content on my channel. So Marvel and Lucasfilm are trying. Marvel is succeeding. Lucasfilm, not so much. And that's what I respect on these kinds of things because I think that's where you get new voices. That's where you get content that you can really learn to love. 
But with that, you also get failures. And Marvel had failures. Marvel had The Incredible Hulk not do well. Marvel had Thor 2 not do well. Those were uh, initial director uh, debuts for in a couple of places, initial writing debuts in a couple of places. But here you've got the, the safe play. What could you possibly say if this fails? What could you possibly say to Ted Sarandos if Benioff and Weiss don't work out? You could certainly comment on this virtual legality video if you happen to catch it. Hi, Netflix, if you caught this. Uh, but otherwise, Ted can say, look, these guys made a massively successful show. Yes, maybe they had some issues at the back end, but other people have had issues at the back end as well. And so we thought it was worth the risk. And if it didn't work out, it was a risk worth taking. And I'll move on in my day. And thank you very much for having me in this meeting, Mr. CEO. And that's how it will go. That's why these things happen. That's why you see these big amounts of money, these big contracts, essentially after a, a major negative event. If you're interested in sports, it's a little bit like signing a free agent after they've done all these great things. And you know, really, in your heart, in, in the back of your mind, that their best days are behind them and the future is being overpaid uh, because you're paying them for past success. That's some of what you can see here in these types of contracts. That's some of what you see in corporate law and corporate business and the way these things are structured. Uh, and it's not that all unusual in other kind of relationships that you might have between a boss and a subordinate, where if you're really thinking uh, on the negative side of things, how can I possibly justify this if this goes wrong? That's how you wind up with deals like that. That's been Virtual Legality for today. If you like this episode, please like, please subscribe to the channel. We talk about these things all the time. Otherwise, thank you so much for watching on YouTube or for listening if you listen to it on a podcast. Share it around with anybody you think might be interested, and I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. <laughs>